Didn't I? There we go. All right. Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. It's been a few weeks, but we're going to get back into our series, Back to God. And so we're going to take just a few moments and uh, kind of go back and summarize what we've addressed and then uh, kind of finish the introduction. The introduction's taken four weeks, and at least this will be the fourth week of it, all right? And so we'll get that done, but um, uh, back to God, all right? Judges chapter 16, we begin dealing with a very, very familiar subject, and that subject is Samson. And boy, I'll tell you what, what a man Samson was. He was a man of all men, so to speak. I mean, if there was a guy that most young men would like to emulate, it'd be the Samson of the Bible, the strong man of the Word of God. And uh, he's a strong guy. And let me tell you guys, it's not all it's cracked up to be, okay? <laughs> be glad and be happy with what, how God made you. Being strong is not always a blessing. And so, be, all right, so just be happy with the way God made you. But we notice in the Word of God as we go through this passage, and we're not going to take the time to read all of the passage, but we know that he meets up with a woman by the name of Delilah, and we know that ultimately her goal, her desire, her longing is to eventually make some money, if you will. So she's going to undermine his authority. She's going to truly, uh, you know, stab him in the back, if you will. She's going to put a hurting on him, and so she's willing to sell him out for some cold, hard cash. And so we know that she's on him and saying, now, what is the secret of your strength, Samson? What's the secret of that strength? And eventually he tells her, well, bind me with seven green whisks. And that's the secret. If you do that, then I'll have no strength, no power. Well, we know that that didn't happen because all of a sudden the Philistines show up and he just shakes himself and he walks on out there and he tears them apart limb by limb. Then later on she says, well, come on now, you lied to me, but tell me the truth. What's the secret of your strength, Samson? And he says, oh, I'll tell you what you do. Just bind me with some new ropes. I mean, brand spanking new ones. Better get those thick ones too. And so they, she goes ahead and gets him bound with these ropes. And I mean, tell you, he just busts them off like nothing. I mean, it was a cakewalk. It was nothing for him. And he goes out and he tears into those Philistines. And then turns around and uh, she says, uh, now, come on now, Samson. I mean, you, you know, you got to be honest with me. I mean, I love you and you're supposed to love me. And what's going on here? And he said, I'll tell you what, weavest the seven locks of my head with a web. You do that, you got me. You figured it out. You, you, you've, you got the source of my strength. And so they, she goes out and weaves the seven locks of his head with a web. And, of course, he just tears that thing out. And then he goes after him again. And we pick up now in verse 15. And the Bible says, and she said unto him, how canst thou say I love thee? When thine heart is not with me, thou hast mocked me these three times and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart. Now, I don't know about you, but once again, isn't it amazing to me that this man Supposedly the strong man of the Bible, this men among men, you know, a man among men. Here he is now after three times being, uh, you know, her, her, you know, trying out the theory. I mean, actually seeking to render him powerless. It's amazing that he then submits and surrenders to that, isn't it? I mean, really, that's just amazing to me. I mean, how ignorant and how stupid are men sometimes? I mean, honestly, you think about that. When it comes to women, we lose our minds. We lose our minds. And you know what? Listen, guys, they know it. So you better be on guard, let me tell you. 
<laughs> because they know our weakness, and our weakness is women, them. The Bible says a, a woman can bring a man to a piece of bread, man. I mean, he did chomped up, chewed up, spit out. I mean, it's just a mess. You better make sure you're following the Lord, not a woman. Amen. Not that all women are bad. Don't misunderstand me there. But let me tell you something. This is an amazing story, and it's, I mean, it's not really a story. It's an account. So anyway, he still, he yields to this. He, he surrenders to this. And eventually he tells her all his heart and says unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Man, that's something. And sure enough, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath shewed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up and, unto her and brought money in their hand. And she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. One of the saddest lines in the Bible. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters and a brass. And he did grind in the prison house, howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Now, I don't know how this happened, but it just happens that the other day I, was, I, I flipped on the television set and I saw that show right there. Man, old Samson, man, he was stuck between those things. He's pushing, you know. Now, it, it really looked kind of funny. It was probably 1940s or something. I don't know what it was, but it didn't look like the new stuff today. But, boy, I'll tell you what, before it was over with, he was pushing on that thing. And, I mean, his hair had started to grow back. And, boom, all of a sudden the temple came crashing down. There were people screaming, ah! You know, it was kind of, it looked really great, you know, compared to what it does today. But anyway, I mean, I, I was, I just was thinking about this passage as I saw that, just that scene. I didn't watch the whole show, but I did see the scene. But man, I'll tell you what, what a, an amazing account here. I mean, here's this man now. He's going to say, as he says here in the passage, he wakes up one day without God. He doesn't even know it. He wakes up one day and does not even know that he is without God. That is an amazing reality here. And so God had departed. And still, somehow, even though God had departed, Samson believes that God is with him still. He still believes that he has the power of God. He still believes he has the presence of God in his life. And yet we know, according to the word of God, that that wasn't the case at all. He wished not that the Lord had departed from him. Didn't even know it. And you know what? The truth is today is that it seems to me that in many cases, we wish not that the Lord has departed. Boy, may God help us to see that there is a need to get back to God. I mean, we got to get back to God, we said, because of our country. Man, I mean, we have a nation that has had its ups and downs through the years concerning faith. We know how early on in our history, sin had gripped our nation and our land. By the mid-1700s, we saw a decline in religious fervor. Science, prosperity, humanism, and immorality seemed to take a hold and became prevalent in our culture. 
And I know we think sometimes that our culture is the worst and most decadent of all ages, but that is not true at all. Matter of fact, in early colonial days, early on in the history of America, there were problems and there were issues. And as I said, we, we note here that brothels were springing up in some of the larger cities. Church attendance was down. Children were being born to couples who hadn't even been married in nine months. And we know there were problems taking place and Satan had got a grip on America. And then the Great Awakening came along. An evangelistic movement that preached old-fashioned hellfire and damnation. And I mean to tell you what transpired and took place was that men and women repented of their sin and they got right with God and they returned back to Jesus Christ and many were saved and were transformed and renewed and there was a movement that took place and took root in America that changed the face of our nation. That same movement seemed to kind of I guess, catapult our nation forward. And for many years, we seem to reap the benefit of that. And it's interesting that it seems today that we've kind of gone back to that again, though, hasn't it? We've kind of retreated back into that old flesh again. We've allowed our nation to kind of depart from the things of God. You know, it says on our currency, in God we trust, but it's quite evident that we don't. At least not as a nation. And so we know we need to get back to God because of our country. We said we need to get back to God because of our culture. Well, I'll tell you what, we have a culture today that, and a society that's become increasingly decadent and evil. We've, we touched on that slightly, but the very values that founded our nation, that, that, that solidified our society, that molded our morals are being removed piece by piece. In the name of personal freedom and expression, acceptance and tolerance, as a result of those things, we have permitted the supports of liberty to be removed. As a nation, we've already removed prayer and the Bible from our schools, and we've replaced them with Darwinism, secularism, humanism. We've already removed the Ten Commandments from the public domain while promoting an anti-God agenda that encourages self-expression, that extols sinful behavior and expects everyone to not only tolerate it, but enthusiastically support it. We've got a culture that needs to get back to God. I mean, the Word of God has been discredited. It's been discarded. It's even been despised to the point where it seems now that people want nothing to do at all with the God of heaven. And I'll tell you what, in the direction we're going and at the rate we're going, the future is sure to be filled with even greater injustices and iniquity. We've got to get back to God because of our culture, because of our country. But we also said we need to get back to God because of our children. Our children. Well, I'll tell you, there's no more precious commodity in our nation than our children is there every single parent in the room would have to say that there's nothing more important to them in a sense than their children we understand that the marriage is paramount we know that that relationship is a priority husband and wife however we also as a couple come together and recognize there's not one possession that we have that is more valuable more precious and more more loved than our children 
And today in the nation in which we live, we're pouring tax dollars and after more tax dollars into our school system trying to educate our children for a positive and productive future. And yet we've removed God from the schools. We've removed God from the home. We've removed God from the culture. And as a result, all the money in the world will never make the difference. As a result of this trend, our children have come a long ways. (laughs) but not the direction we'd like them to have come. I mean, over these last few decades, we've peddled a doctrine of distrust and disgust for God, faith, and good. Our children are being overrun and ruined with an anti-God mentality and an anti-God morality. The diabolical assault upon our children has fueled immorality, anti-social tendencies, and destructive behavior. Children more than ever are seeking to commit suicide. They're more depressed than ever. They, have, they feel more hopeless than ever. Why is that? I believe there's something to do with God there or lack thereof. By the way, things are only going to get worse unless we get back to God. We've got to get back to God for our children. And tonight I want to touch on this aspect as we conclude our introduction to the series. We, gotta, we must get back to God because of our churches. Because of our churches. Well, let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll take just a few minutes and consider that thought. Father, we come to you. We thank you again, Lord, just for the privilege that we have to gather in this place. Lord, we understand that the church is, a, is an ecclesia. It's a called-out assembly unto you, Lord, and we're called out from the world. We've been rescued from the world. And, Lord, we come together as, as one, Father, to bring glory and honor to you and ultimately be equipped so that we can go out and truly evangelize and in, impact our country, our culture, our children for your glory. Father, help us, Lord, tonight to just be inspired by your word and to be encouraged, Father, to get back to you. To get back to you, Lord, just for the church's sake even, your bride's sake. Or how sad would it be to, Father, be in a position where the bride is not pure. And Lord, you deserve the best we have, not our leftovers. Help us, Lord, we pray. May the church as a whole get back to you. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The late Dr. Charles Woodbridge, he was a fundamentalist and a faithful man of God. He warned of five downward paths of error. Five downward paths of error, or five steps to that downward spiral. First of all, Dr. Woodbridge, he said, there's toleration of error. The first thing is toleration of error. The first thing is is that we put up with error. We tolerate the error. Now, we don't necessarily agree with it. We don't embrace it, but we tolerate it. That's the first step. He goes on to say, then we accommodate the error, or accommodation of error. So we tolerate, then we accommodate. And what that means, basically, if we could just boil it down, is we, in a sense, kind of accept or appease it. We stop opposing it. We accommodate it. If I would say to you, uh, if you would say to me tonight, uh, preacher, uh, we have some accommodations at our house for you. You, you would invite me in your home and you would care for me. You, you would put me up. You would provide for me. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a sad time in our world when even the church, if we're not careful, is accommodating error. Toleration of error, he says. Dr. Woodbridge says accommodation of error. Then the next step would be cooperation with error, he says. 
cooperation. Now we're getting along with this error. We get along with it. it Maybe even supporting it to some degree or another. Not necessarily supporting it in our own lives, not embracing it in our own lives maybe, but on the behalf of others. We're cooperating with it in a sense. We're getting along with it now. It's not something that appalls us. It's something that we figure, well, we, we might as well work with it because we're not going to be able to overcome it, if you will. And so there's toleration of error, accommodation of error. Then there's cooperation with error. And then he goes on to say, then there's contamination by error. Now all of a sudden, we've we've tolerated, we've accommodated it, we've cooperated with it. And now he says, you're contaminated by it. See, contamination means making something impure or unsuitable by contact. Boy, I'll tell you what, is that not a definition of our culture and our society today? Even amongst the church, even amongst believers, we are so saturated by sin, so, so inundated with corruption that it is affecting our view, our outlook, our lives in a very negative way in many cases. The error takes root in our heart. It takes root in our mind. It corrupts us. Now what the Bible says is wrong, even we're tempted to say, well... I mean, I know what the Bible says, but we've been corrupted. I know it's spelled out in that passage, but certainly a God of love would not be that harsh on that because there are good people that are buying into this falsehood. Certainly God wouldn't be that harsh. He wouldn't be that difficult about it. He wouldn't be that specific in and he wouldn't be that insensitive to their emotional needs. And we, God would expect us to love them and embrace them like he would anything else. Hey, God does never, it never tells us not to love people. But we are not to be corrupted by corruption. We're not to eventually end up looking and acting and being like the world. That's never been God's intention. We're a peculiar people. We ought to be different, unique. Because we've been called out of the world to be separated unto God. So we have the toleration of error, Dr. Woodbridge says. The accommodation of error, the cooperation with error, and then contamination by error. And finally, here's the thing. He says, ultimately, capitulation to error. That's a big word, isn't it? Just means to surrender to it. We just throw our hands in and say, you know what? There's no fighting it at all. There's no reason to even oppose it. As a matter of fact, No biggie. We're actually get to the point where we stop resisting and even at times support it. We're overcome with the error itself. Boy, isn't it sad today? And now listen to me. You go ahead and you do whatever you want. I, I love people. I love people. But there is an element here, and I know it's gotten said so many times that people are like, oh, there you go with another cliche you got to love the what? Sinner, but hate the sin, right? Let me tell you something. We live in a very mixed up church today. Now watch what I mean. We have churches in America that, are, that profess Christ at the very foundation of their churches and ministries that are not only saying it's okay to be homosexual, but they're literally placing them in their pulpits. Now listen, you go ahead, do whatever you want. You'll answer to God for that. But the Bible is extremely clear on how God feels about that sin. 
But by the way, let me say this in, in relationship to that as well. When we start talking about immoral sin, can I tell you that, that heterosexual immorality is just as bad as that? Amen. I'm sick and tired of this double standard that all of a sudden everybody's so wicked that's doing this. But then on the other hand, you can do that and it's all right. You got to be consistent if you're a believer today. You got to take God's position on every single topic, not just the ones that you agree with because you're not involved in it. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing. I'm just saying that we're tempted to do that at times. We justify our own sin or our own position or our own outlook because we're not really involved in it. We'll say, well, thus saith the Lord. Well, he's saying that about some other sins too. But I'll tell you what, this capitulation to error is a problem in the church. The scriptures would certainly support his observations, by the way. Look, if you would, in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. If we would ask you, what's the name of the church? You say, the, the, and again, you've got to be careful because, you know, we've got churches calling themselves this. But, but this, this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his church, right? Now, we're not, we're not you know, Mormons. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. But this is Jesus' church. And you know what the fact is, is that everything about this church ought to, ought to always point to him. Now listen, if I asked you today, should a wife seek to meet the needs of her husband? You'd say, well, look at her. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. You know, I mean, some of you guys would go buck on that one. Well, let me ask you something. How are you doing on submitting to your, the groom? You're the bride. How are you doing with Jesus? Honey, you better submit to me. The Bible says you're to submit. Yeah, what about you to God? Amen. And by the way, I'm just going to say this, and I'm not mad at anybody, but I'm telling you, it's about time some men step up and be the kind of Christians they ought to be and quit letting their wives run the spiritual home. It's time men start acting like godly men and start living like godly men and start leading like godly men. Well, I'm just too busy, preacher. Let the wife handle all that. You're a lame duck. You got problems, Buster. Let me tell you something. You're going to run into issues down the road, too. Well, I'm just not good at that stuff. Well, you better get good at it. Because if you're not good at it, it means you have no relationship with the Lord because you'd be having a good relationship with Him on your own. You'd be able to step into that next realm a little bit. When you ain't got nothing to say because you have nothing from God, then I guess you've got to keep your mouth shut. When you're getting something from God, you'll be able to open it and share it with your kids and with your wife. There's a problem in our world and in the church today especially where men have stepped back and let women run the show. And I'm not opposed to women being involved in the ministry. If it wasn't for the women at Community Baptist Temple, I don't even know where we'd be. Praise God for some good godly women that have stepped up through the years and made a difference and impacted our culture here. And we thank God for the men that have as well. But I'm telling you, as we move forward, it's going to be easier and easier for men to back away. We are demasculatizing men. We're telling them that they don't have to be leaders. As a matter of fact, we're told you're offensive if you are a leader today as a man. I'm going to tell you something. We still got to maintain the biblical perspective. And God says, you boys better grow up to be men. Men of God, too. Not just men that go around with big muscles, but men that have big spiritual muscles. I don't know about these guys in the room, but I know for me, there's nothing more attractive to me than a woman who's a godly woman. That's attractive to me. 
Man, that, that's, that just kind of draws me to somebody when they're godly like that. I remember my own wife years ago as a young woman, just the fact that she was real, she was genuine, she wasn't fake or phony, that was attractive to me. I'm going to tell you something, gentlemen, that's attractive to a godly woman too. You're worried about how you look. My hair's got to be in perfect place and my, my jeans have to fit right and my shirt and tie have to be just right. I got to be stylish. I got to look good. Why don't you be spiritually good looking? Amen. Spend a little time getting in the mirror and looking at your old self and recognize what you are and who you are without Jesus Christ and then go to him and say, God, there's sin in my life and I'm ugly in sin. I got to get right with you. And then when you do that, maybe some godly woman will finally look at you. So the scripture says in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Notice again the progression here that even the psalmist spells out. He said, Blessed is the man, or happy is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. This guy, he, he's not walking with him. And he says, I want nothing to do with him. I'm not, I'm not listening to what the ungodly have to say. I want nothing to do with them. Well, I'll tell you what, that's important. He goes on to say, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But I want you to notice as we move on in that passage, notice what it says in chapter 1. He goes on to say, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chafe. Well, I'll tell you what, there's problems there. They're going to flow away. They're not going to be standing in the end. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Well, I'll tell you what, it's important that we don't get connected, unequally yoked together with these unbelievers or with folks that don't have the same mindset as us. And again, we're not talking about not being friendly to lost people so that we can ultimately reach them. But you do not reach somebody for Jesus when you become like them. Because where there is no difference, there is no difference. I know that sounded really weird, but it's really profound if you think about it. What the world wants is something different, not the same thing. And you know what? The problem is, is that we walk, first of all, with the ungodly. We listen to what they have to say. Then before we know it, we stop and we stand. And now we're in the way with them. And then before it's over with, we are seated with them. We're right where they are. At first, we're just flirting around with it. Then we kind of stop and take notice more than ever. And before you know it, we're very comfortable to sit in the midst of it all. And that's exactly what Dr. Woodbridge said. And may I say that it seems to be the mentality of the church today. We are flirting with the world. And so in some cases, we've even sat down. To, we've gotten to the point where we've stood with them and fellowship with them to the point now we've in, endorsed and invited the world into our churches. We wouldn't say that lost people can be members of our church, but we'll incorporate their music and we'll incorporate their worship and we'll incorporate their, their brand of spirituality. It appears in our modern churches that we have deviated from the expectations of God in many cases. And what I mean by that is that the Bible is no longer, in general, the object of our faith and practice. That all of a sudden, this book doesn't determine what is right and wrong anymore. This is not our final authority any longer. 
how we feel about a subject becomes the final authority. That's the sad place to be. We have forfeited the commands of Scripture for personal comfort and convenience in many cases. Again, what is convenient for us is what matters. I know this is wrong, however, but we got a problem. And unfortunately, we see here today in the churches, and I'm not just talking about uh, Archer, I'm talking about churches in general. If we're not careful, we find ourselves no longer uh, allowing the Word of God to be the object of our faith and practice. We are forfeiting the commands of Scripture for personal comfort and convenience. Also, an overall attitude of tolerance has pervaded our pulpits and our pews. And it's, weighed, it's, it's made its way into our pulpits even. It's in the pews. And this idea of tolerating things that we know are biblically, biblically um, wrong. I mean, scripturally wrong. I mean, blatantly wrong, according to the Word of God. Those are things we have to address, deal with. Well, we've gotten away from God. We need to get back to God. Now, again, I'm not just talking about our church. And although, let me tell you something, before we, before we get on this, our high horses and start talking about, well, praise God, that's not our church. That could be our church tomorrow. I mean, this is a battle you fight daily. This is a battle you fight consistently. This isn't something, well, look at our track record. Now we can relax. No, you can't relax. You're in a battle. Somebody's going to be taking ground or giving ground one way or the other. There's no neutral here. And so we see here as we talk about this expectations of God being kind of let down or failing to follow through with it, the Bible's no longer in general the object of our faith and practice. We've forfeited the commands of Scripture in many cases for personal comfort and convenience. An overall attitude of tolerance has pervaded our pulpits and our pews. Finally, as I look at it, the adherence to absolute truth has been almost entirely discarded. You know, if you, look at, if you look at some statistics, you know, across the board, you're going to find that overall, in general, Americans do not believe in absolute truth anymore. There are no absolute truths. You want to know why? Truth is relative. It's based on your situation, your circumstances. I mean, it's kind of the old adage again. Is it all right to steal medicine that would save your child's life? What's the Bible say about stealing? Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments? Wait a second. In our hearts and minds, though, even we can justify sin under the right circumstances. And may I say, what we have done then is we we have just bought into the lie that absolute truth is not absolute anymore. Someone says, well, yeah, but if I was in that situation, I'd do anything. Okay, what if you had to murder somebody then to get it? Is that okay then? I'm just saying, is absolute truth, is God's word true or not? Are there some lines that we do not cross? Is there absolute truth that God defines and outlines in the word of God? Absolutely there is. And may I say today, the reason why our standards are lowering in our court systems, the reason why the school system doesn't have control of the children, the reason why colleges have gone off the deep end, the reason why teenagers and young people are marching in streets and stopping traffic on major highways today is because there are no absolute truths. It's all based on feeling and it's all based on perception. And unfortunately, it's pervaded the church. It's entered the church today. 
Well, pastor, you know, we have to think about that person. You've got to understand the circumstances. And I know he cheated on his wife, but if you only knew the situation, you would say it's all right for him to continue to be in the pulpit or it's all right for him to continue to be a trustee. It's all right for him to continue to be a deacon. It's all right for him to continue to be a Sunday school teacher. You just don't know why he cheated. You just got to try to understand his situation. No, I don't. Listen, I may love the man and I may feel for the man and I may even understand to some degree how he bought into that lie that Satan sold him. But I'll tell you this much. There's an absolute truth here. You can't have somebody serving publicly that has been in open sin. Can't do it. You can't do that. I mean, that's just God's way. You've got to have a testimony. It's clear in the word of God. There has to be distinction. There has to be separation. I understand there are circumstances. And the Bible says in Galatians 6 that we ought to restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, in humility, realizing that it could be us. I understand that. But there still are some things that God says, this is how it gets done. There's right and there's wrong. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Be careful. Even the church today. The prophecy written by the hand of John in Revelation chapter 3 has seemed to come true, hasn't it? Look if you would in John chapter 3. The church is in dire need of getting back to God as a whole. Now, again, I, I understand it. And I'm going to tell you something. Our church, we got to get back to God, too. I mean, there's elements of our life. I mean, how much are we praying and how much are we truly reaching out to our community? I'm going to share something with you that I think you're going to find alarming. Here, I'm going to share this with you. I wasn't going to, but I want you to understand what's going on at Community Baptist Temple a little bit. There were 38 people that went out soul winning on the first Tuesday. There were 36 people on the Thursday. The following week, there were 30-some, and now there was like 20-some. Here, hold on, though. I want to share something with you. Saturday. Big day, right? Big day. Going out, reaching souls. Big day. You've got to understand something. Our bus ministry is involved, has a lot of teenagers in it. And it has some adults in it. Not, not, not a ton, but it's got some adults and a bunch of teens. And those teenagers and adults are over here in another room being fired up to go out and to, to blitz their area, their community, to try to reach out to children and ultimately bring kids on the buses. Praise God, there were children on our buses today and they were coming in and hearing the gospel. We thank God for that. A number of doors I trust were being hit through this last week. I haven't got the reports yet of how many doors were hit. Prospecting, not just visiting bus routes. Hold on now. Let's subtract out the staff after that. Let's take the staff out of that. Not the bus ministry, but out of what's left. Watch this now. This ought to break your heart. It breaks mine. Preacher, we're doing good around here. Do you realize that Saturday only four teams went out that were not staff, teenagers, and bus workers? Four groups of adults went out on the Saturday soul winning. Four groups. Myself, Brad, and Brother Cavanaugh made up three teams. There were only four other teams left after that. Oh, we don't need to get back to God, preacher. Oh, really? When this is a big push for us. Now listen to me, I, I don't beat people over the head with stuff like this. You know that. 
But I just want us to understand, before we get on our high horses and start feeling like we got it figured out in all the other churches, man, they don't got it. We got some room for improvement around here, folks. When you got a church like this, even on a Sunday night, and only four teams went out that are not part of the bus ministry and the staff. Four teams. Okay, let's go ahead and say that each of those teams did 30 houses. We had 120 visits made this week by the church. It's not a paid staff members. 120 visits. Now, does that, does that sound good to you? I don't know about you, but that's alarming to me. See, what things appear is not always what they are. We've got to thank our teenagers for being so faithful, going out knocking doors. Thank our singles for going out knocking doors. I don't know. I don't know how many of those four were singles. I don't even know if they were. A lot of them are in the bus ministry, too. And by the way, a lot of those are the same ones that come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays as well. I'm just saying, we got some room for improvement. I think we got to get back to God a little bit. Our hearts got to be broken for lost people. We have to see a need to surrender and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know he thought it was pretty big time to come down and try to reach the world with the gospel. He was willing to leave glory and ultimately walk the dusty trails of Galilee, reaching out to the community and trying to win people to him. Notice this in Revelation chapter 3. Here's the state of the church then. And here's where we find ourselves. Here's where we find the state of the professing church. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. See, in order to fully appreciate that passage there in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, it's very helpful to understand that the churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are both literal churches that existed in 90 A.D. when John wrote the book and also prophetical representations of the professing church over the last 2,000 years. Now again, I understand. Uh, uh, when we speak of the professing church, I believe it's a reference to all the churches. I, th- I believe what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to express to you is all churches that profess Christ in any sense of the word, that build their, their churches on Christ or on the the death and the resurrection. They say, we believe that Jesus came, died, and was buried and rose again. Listen, that would include Catholics. That would include Protestants. That would include Baptists. It'd include any other group that believes anything to that sense. Okay, that would be considered the professing church. And it is believed by many, and I believe this as well, I'm very, pretty, I'm, I'm very confident about this, that those seven churches spoken of in Revelation, although they were literal churches, I do believe they represented specific periods of church history down through the years. You say, what do you mean? Well, if you look at the characteristics and quality of the church at Ephesus, we, we, we look at those and we say, wow, what a pure church. What an amazing church. Nothing bad was said about them. And I believe that if you look at and study it out, you can kind of, and these are general, they're not specific, it's not to the year, I get it, but up to about 2000, uh, 200 AD, we see evidence of the Ephesus church, the, the characteristics and qualities of Ephesus. Unfortunately, though, we see that the characteristics there are carried in to the next church, Smyrna, and that traveled up the way about to 325 AD, so between 200 and 325, and what you find there is Constantine around 325, he sees that you know, a uh, cross in the sky burning and, you know, uh, you're going to conquer through this cross and all of that. And we see him marching across Europe and there he is making an impact, saying to people all the time, listen, you either get baptized or you will be beheaded. That makes for a pretty good church, right? 
Either, either profess Christ and get baptized or you die. Well, even if you don't believe, you're going to say, okay, baptize me if that's all it takes. I'm doing it. I bet there was a lot of converts in those days. But they weren't real ones. <laughs> and then you have Pergamus. That we believe goes to about 500 A.D. Of course, we know the Dark Ages kicked off around that time. And then for a thousand years, you have the Dark Ages between the churches there of Pergamus and Thyatira. And then all of a sudden, you got Sardis there as well. Then Philadelphia, around 1500 to 1900. It's interesting what the Bible says about the church at Philadelphia as well in chapter 3. Notice what it says in chapter 3, verse 8, about Philadelphia. And remember what's transpiring, what's taking place here. We'll talk about it in just a moment. But it's interesting, historically speaking, if you, if you have any tendency to lean toward this, it's funny how it does seem to work out historically, these different churches and the characteristics that are expressed in those chapters. Notice what it says about this church in Revelation 3.8. It says, I know thy works, the Lord is speaking. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Well, that's an amazing testimony of a church, is it not? I believe that church literally existed in 90 AD. And I believe those characteristics and qualities were were evident there. But I also believe that it is representative of a period of church history between about the time of the Reformation right on through to about the 1900s. And that that portion of church history is marked with Christopher Columbus discovering America. 1492. It's with Martin Luther nailing his 95 thesis on the door of Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. It's the beginning of the Reformation. We see the King James Bible in 1611. We note the many missionary efforts that evangelized the world during that period of time. The greatest revivals ever in the history of America were born, in the history of the world were there between the 16th, uh, after the King James Bible, my friend, up to present. It's amazing what's transpiring taking place as a result. The church of Philadelphia was a church, the Bible says, was the church of the open door. There was an open door. No one could shut it. Souls are being saved. Transformation taking place in lives. Man, great things, ministerially speaking, are taking place. But the church at Laodicea, if you keep reading, is the church of the closed door here. Jesus is on the outside knocking. Let me in, he says to the church. I've been replaced. I'm no longer allowed in my own church. How sad is that? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's the context of the passage is the churches. It's not individual, although the application can be individual, but the doctrinal application is truly the church. And Jesus is on the outside knocking. He's looking to get in, but he's waiting for an answer, a response. Will somebody let me in to my own church? And that, I believe, is the church age in which we now live. A time marked by prosperity and personal rights. A period of church history that God describes in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 as having need of nothing. Look at Revelation 3, 17. You're already there in 8. Notice what it says in verse 17. He's talking to the church at Laodicea again, the same church that he ultimately addresses in chapter 3, verse 20. But he says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I mean to tell you, it's an amazing testimony, isn't it? The church is saying, I'm rich and increased with goods. 
I mean, we have these wonderful edifices and we have these soft and comfortable seats and we've got an orchestra and we've got pianos and we've got instruments and we've got special music and we've got all the things that make it come alive and sound wonderful. The machinery's all in place. It's so wonderful. He says, but if you're not careful, I'm on the outside knocking. You may feel and think that you are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but you are wretched and miserable and uh, poor and blind and naked. Boy, to be that deceived, that'd be amazing, isn't it? You ever watched a child that maybe you love with all your heart going in the wrong direction and they honestly believe that they're headed in the right direction? They'll argue with you that you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have a clue. And you're thinking you don't have a clue. And that's the church toward the end of this age. We have everything we need. So who needs God? Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 and 9 says this. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Doesn't that sound like the Laodicean church? Who are you? I don't need you. Remember Samson? He wist not that the Lord had departed. He didn't even know it. And if we're not careful in our churches, the preaching's going forward. <clears throat> the message being taught in Sunday school, so to speak. We're going through the motions and we're doing all the things. The doors are open and we're inviting people in and our music program's going and everything's taking place. But if we're not careful, we've closed out God. And we bring to fruition 2 Timothy 3, 5 when it says, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Sadly, that could be the church really today, couldn't it? Honestly, four teens, and we wonder why God's not blessing more. Maybe we have a form of godliness, but we're denying the power. Maybe there's other things that are more important to us than the work of God and the plan of God the purpose of God for our existence. As I close, let me just read your purpose for existing today, my purpose. Revelation 4.11. Say, what's, what am I here for? What's my purpose? Here it is. Spelled out for us very carefully, very simply. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. We were created for His pleasure, not for ours, His. 
May God help us as a church and the churches to realize it's time to get back to God. We got to get back to God. Why? Because our children are counting on a church to be strong for the Lord and on his behalf. We got a country and we got a culture that is in need of a strong church that will make an impact and a difference in the culture and society we live in. May God help us as a church to make sure we get back to God in any area that we're not already where we belong. And as a whole, the church today, across the board, from the west to the east coast in America, as a whole, needs to get back to God. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd help us today. And Lord, we know, Father, that